Hi, everyone, and welcome to part two of our discussion of the FPGA-centric results from the 2022 Wilson Research Group Functional Verification Study. My name is Joe Hupsey, and I'm a verification product technologist and your host for today. Our featured speaker is Harry Foster, our chief scientist for verification. So, Harry, in our first episode, we talked a lot about FPGA design complexity trends. How are these trends impacting FPGA verification complexity? That's actually an interesting question, and I also think it's a biased question. The reason was, if you went back to 2000, 2001, there was a popular verification book that was published then that made the claim 70% of all effort in a project's associated with verification. Yet, it actually didn't provide any data to back that up. And for years, people have been saying that. And it's probably based on empirical data. It's probably not too far off. But that's one thing we can't ask. We can't ask, what was the effort? Because <laughs> we'll get the answer 70%. So we come about this a couple ways. We look at multiple data points. For example, one data point we look at is that we ask a question about the percentage of FPJ project time spent in verification. And of course, it's all over the spectrum. But if you look at the average and, and really uh, the medium, we find that 40 to 50% of a project's time is spent in verification. So that's just one data point. Another data point we track is the mean peak number of engineers on a project. And we're talking about design engineers and verification engineers. And what we found here is in the FPGA space, it wasn't too big a surprise. We found that 22% of projects don't even have verification engineers. So you have a guy that's doing everything, design and verification. Now, that is changing, and the reason it's changing is due to growing complexity of FPGAs. If you look the past 10 years at the growth of design engineers, it went back to 2012, the average mean peak number of FPGA designers was four. And again, that's a mean. It's an average because some have more, some have less. That average grew to 4.7. That's an 18% growth in the past 10 years. However, if you look at verification... In 2012, that's 10 years ago, there were 2.4 verification engineers. That actually grew to 3.6, and that's a 38% growth in verification engineers. Again, another indication of growing complexity. But there's another piece of this, too, you have to look at. If you, if you just talk to the design engineer and ask, what percentage of time are you spending doing design tasks versus verification tasks, you'll find that they spend 58% of their time involved in design tasks and 42% involved in verification tasks. So again, there's a lot of the designers time is actually spent in verification is one of the key points of, of that. And then finally, if you look at verification engineers and ask, where are you spending your time? There's different tasks such as test planning, test bench development, creating tests uh, and debug and other the bulk of their time, 47%, is actually spent in verification. And this is a concern to many project managers. And the reason for that is that I can gather metrics on all the time it's uh, spent on all these different processes. However, the debug process can vary so much. I can get into a situation where it took me a couple hours to debug something. The next bug might take me a week. And that variance is something that project managers want to minimize because it's something they want to be able to get their hands around. I see. And this, this prompts a question around what verification technology adoption trends are you seeing that developers are applying to address the complexities you talked about? 
Yeah, so there's a couple things we, by the way, we actually separate this looking at dynamic techniques and uh, formal techniques. And dynamic techniques can be emulation, simulation, FPJ prototyping, and so on. But a couple data points within dynamic techniques, one of them is code coverage. What we found is that if you went back 10 years ago, you had about 50% adoption of code coverage. Now, keep in mind, code coverage has been around since the early 90s. And that grew to 57% today. So not huge growth there, but it, it is continuing to grow. Another data point we looked at is functional coverage. Again, over that same 10-year period, that grew from 41% adoption in 2012 to 55% adoption. That's pretty uh, healthy growth there. And what's driving that is not only uh, more adoption of constrained random, but it's, it's also basically a technique often used in safety-critical designs to check the box, yes, we did actually check these features. They create a functional coverage model around those safety features. So that's driving that. And then assertions, that's another thing we track in the past 10 years that grew from 36% to 43%. And then finally, constrained random. This has been slower growth from 31% to 35%. By the way, I want to make a comment before we talk about formal techniques related to constrained random. There was a study that was done at IBM many years ago, and they're looking at bug density, trying to figure out, are there certain classes of designs that lend themselves to uh, more bugs than others? And what they found were that designs that were concurrent in nature, had concurrent data streams coming in, had five times the amount of bugs as designs that were sequential in nature. In other words, I have a data path coming in, it might go through a complex math transformation go out. And the reason for that is that the concurrent designs have these complex controls and these interaction of these uh, data paths. So constrained random is pretty critical to actually go after those class of bugs. The reason is humans have a difficult time reasoning about concurrency, and constrained randoms essentially synthesizing a lot of tests I would never think of. But it also, another class of technology that lends itself to finding these is formal. And so that's one other thing that we... Uh, uh, I've tracked. Well, say some more about that. Say some more about the, the formal verification techniques that people are using on FPGA projects. I'm only going to focus on formal property checking and automatic apps. The formal property checking is where the user will take the design, write a set of assertions. These are properties, uh, features of design they want to verify, and then write a set of constraints, which are essentially assertions that limit the, the, the input space to valid uh, stimulus. You can think of it that way. They then put this into a tool, and the tool mathematically basically unrolls the state space and checks the assertion on every state. Now, what we found is we've come a long ways for FPGAs. If you went back to 2014, only 14% of FPGA projects had adopted it. It has grown to 25%. That's a 79% increase in formal property checking. If you look at these automatic formal apps, they grew from 9% to 16%. That's a 28%. And the difference in these formal apps is that the user doesn't have to write these assertions. These properties are essentially automatically extracted from the design, and the formal engine can verify them. An example, the tool would identify a state machine and check to see if, if you have some sort of deadlock in that state machine. That's just one example. Well, that's a powerful example. And that's just to digress a little bit is, you know, formal is obviously such a powerful technique to employ. Why do some projects uh, succeed while others seem to struggle with it? It seems like 
there's always that kind of challenge of adopting formal. And, and I think you hit upon it, though, with the applications. Maybe say some more about this. The applications in, in mind, there, there are no brainer. Basically, what happens, we've identified a very narrowly focused problem that we can automate and the user doesn't have to get involved. Again, we, we can automatically create the property and stuff. So that's something I would anticipate we're going to see more and more adoption of that because, again, there's very little interaction other than debugging. When I find a problem, there's very little interaction with the automatic. Now, when you get into formal property checking itself, where the user has to write the assertions, there's two modes of thinking about this, two use models. One is a bug hunting model, and the other is what I call assurance, where once I've proved this property, there would be no stimulus or simulation I could ever create that would ever expose a bug to this. Bug hunting is actually an easier task. I read a set of assertions. If I find a bug, great. If I don't and I run into complexity, I move on. I think where people fail is that they go out and buy a tool and then they write a couple of assertions and then put it on the shelf because they haven't matured in the skills to succeed to get the most out of the tool. This is not limited to formal. I'll give you an example. If I came to you and told you I have this amazing tool that can do constrained, rounded, coverage-driven simulation, and you've never done that, the question is, would you succeed? And the answer is probably not, until the organization develops skills on object-oriented programming, how to create coverage models, and so on. It's the same thing when you get into the these assurance aspect of using formal property checking. There's skills that you basically need to actually accomplish that. And fortunately, that's something we actually teach out on the Verification Academy. Yeah, and I think it you just this just ties into the theme of the complexity is increasing in the FPGA world, let alone the rest of electronics. And it's so important to get training or at least pursue the resources that are there, like on Academy. But learning curve is not so steep, right? I think it's it's a pretty shallow curve, and then you get the benefit of these techniques. That's right. The point being is that you can't just get a tool, push the button, and expect the results. There is uh, skills that the organization should develop to get the most out of it. Now, let me shift gears and ask you about design and verification languages. What are the trends you're seeing related to language adoption? For example, languages used to create the DUT for FPGA projects. In FPGAs, it's not a surprise. It's, it's always been uh, predominantly VHDL. Now, that has started to shift recently. We find about 66% of projects are using uh, VHDL, where we find about 54% are using Verilog, about 8% System C, 25% a System Verilog, 25% are using Series C++, and then about 3% other. Now, it's basically been flat in terms of VHDL and Verilog. We are seeing growth in a couple areas. The growth is in uh, System C a little bit, a lot more growth in System Verilog, and there's a lot of growth in C and C++, and that's a lot of that's being driven by uh, using high-level synthesis. The reason is... FPGAs lend themselves quite well to do signal processing, and so that's algorithm-based, and that's where the C and C++ come in. But anyway, so you get the sense. And then, by the way, the reason this, these numbers don't sound 100%, it's not too unusual for a project will have some VHDL, and then they might have some C or C++ and so on. Yeah, especially as they have a mix of IPs, right, uh, on board the device. Now, what about the test bench languages for FPGA projects? Yeah, so in test benches, it's predominantly... VHDL, we see about 55% of VHDL. In Verilog, we see about 32%. And the same thing with System Verilog at the moment. 
a huge increase uh, over the past six years in terms of C and C++. And again, a, a lot of that's, there's a lot more signal processing and, and, and not only the AI uh, accelerators are being created for FPGAs, that's driving a lot of that. It prompts the related question, you know, language is one thing, but what about the methodologies for verification that have emerged for FPGA development? So FPGA, the main methodology, and these these base class libraries, you can think of it that way, is the Acceler of UVM. That's in the order of about 40% of FPGA projects. Everything else has been declining over the years, like OVM, uh, the mentors, AVM, Synopsys, uh, VMM, and so on. Everything's essentially declining. Now, this past year for FPGAs, we don't see this in ASIC. We have seen some healthy adoption in terms of OSVVM and UVVM. For example, OSVVM grew from 17% to 27% adoption. UVVM grew from 10% to 18%. However, I do want to point out that I'm a little skeptical in the adoption of OSVVM, UVVM, in that I don't think they're using it effectively in the sense that we find that users that are doing UVVM, 70% of those are doing constrained random. We only find 35% doing constrained random on OSVVM or UVVM, which lets me to believe uh, these are either simpler designs or many of these people don't understand that issue. I talked about concurrency and addressing these corner cases and the need for constrained random. Before we conclude the segment, let's take a step back and any final thoughts? We've covered a lot of ground. What kind of comes to mind as you look at the landscape of FPGA design and verification? In my mind, FPGAs are going through this rapid ramp up and maturing their processes. Uh, It's being forced on on them due to growing complexity. And so one of the things I was interested in was does this stuff really work? If, if you're adopting these things, does it really work? And, and it, can I do, move beyond just a marketing slogan? Oh, this stuff is great. Can I quantitatively do an analysis to determine the, does this stuff uh, really work? And I did that. What I did is I went back to that data point, uh, non-trivial bug escapes into production. And I divided into two independent groups. And the independent's important because you can't sum the results uh, across them. I then looked at the one group was no bug escapes in production. The other was multiple, uh, one or more non-trivial bug escapes in production. I then looked at the adoption of these different techniques. And what I found was that it is statistically significant, the difference between adopting co-coverage, functional coverage, assertion, constrained, random, and, and functional coverage. And so this is a pretty key point. And the re- reason for that is that if you look at co-coverage, we have a, about uh, 65% adoption with no bug escapes in production. Bug escapes, it's down to about 45%. If you look at functional coverage, we have cl- uh, close to 50% adoption. It's down again to about uh, 40%. If you look at assertions, we have close to 40% uh, for those who no bug escapes, and it's down to about 30% for bug escapes. Formal, this is interesting. Formal, we with no bug escapes, 20% adoption versus no bug escapes, only 10%. That's, that's a 100% increase in adoption. Clearly, it's statistically significant that projects that are mature do much better. Uh, they won't experience these non-trivial bug escapes into production. This is just so interesting. And I'm sure I speak for the audience when I say... We really want to hear more, but unfortunately, we're out of time for this episode. 
However, in our next installment, we'll turn our attention to ASIC trends. So thank you again, Harry, for sharing this fantastic data. Thanks everyone for listening. And we invite you to tune in for our next episodes on ASIC trends. Mm-hmm.